Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by Funkinstiff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at Funkinstuff.net and on YouTube, Truth and Rhythm can now also be enjoyed on the go as audio podcast edition from Funkinstuff.net, iTunes, and other leading providers. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide to Funk. Get your copy if you don't have it yet. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, I thank you very much for your continued interest and support. You have to bear with me a little on today's show because I do have a cold, as you know, regular viewers can probably tell from my voice, but funk soldiers gotta gotta push on. So I'll keep at it. Especially because my guest today is keyboardist, trumpet player, composer, and producer Jerry Thomas, a central figure with not one, but two of the most prominent funk R&B bands of the 1970s. I'm talking about the Fatback Band and the Jimmy Castor Bunch. Jerry recorded some 30 albums between the two, about 20 of them for Fatback that extended well into the 1980s. That group, which was founded by drummer Bill Curtis, released many funkified tracks with some favorites, including Are You Ready, Do the Bus Stop? Do the Spanish Hustle, I Like Girls, Gotta Get My Hands on Some Money, Backstroking, King Tim the Third, Personality Jock, Freak the Freak the Funk, Let's Do It Again, and Hip So Slick. The biggest hits, or I should say the biggest hit there was Backstroking, which went to number three on the US R&B chart in 1980. The Jimmy Castor Bunch's danceable delights included Troglodyte, Caveman, which was a top 10 U.S. pop crossover hit in 1972. Also, Luther the Anthropoid, or, yeah, <laughs> Anthropoid, <laughs> Ape Man, The Birth of Butt Boogie, King Kong, Super Sound, and Space Age. Thanks to those early 1970s hits, the first of which I heard in grade school, I was familiar with the Jimmy Castor Bunch from an earlier age, but thanks to I Like Girls, I became a much bigger Fatback uh, fan. Although Castor was a talented multi-instrumentalist, they always seemed a bit more like a novelty act to me, um, whereas Fatback was more of a straight-up funk and R&B band, but you know, behind the Castor bunch was amazing musicians. Heavily influenced by the horn-driven syncopations of James Brown and the JBs, Fatback band albums were Parties on Wax with festive songs setting just about anyone within earshot in motion, grooving to the funk, soul, Latin, disco, New Orleans, and reggae rhythms. While the Fatback Band, for the most part, ended its prolific run of producing studio albums in the late 1980s, a version of the group continues to perform. With that, let's find out how all of that wonderful music came to be with one of the primary parties responsible for it, Mr. Jerry Thomas. So with that, Jerry, I turn the camera on you, and say how you doing how you doing doc i'm sorry to hear you got a cold you're not supposed to get a cold on the west coast uh, well no i'm actually in uh, the carolinas now oh are you oh well no wonder then get ready yeah. for me. <laughs> yeah so but you're up uh the coast a bit right so where are you I'm right in now washington uh in virginia actually uh in manassas a home of bull run uh from the civil war uh so yeah i'm originally from the bronx new york uh so uh, came down here. We used to we used to play down in, in uh, Washington a lot when I was with Jimmy, and I always had an affinity for the city. Back then, it was called Chocolate City. 
for a lot of obvious reasons um, that your fan, your listeners probably know. But um, uh, Washington was always a fun town. As a matter of fact, I like hanging out in Washington more than I did in New York. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been, I came out to the East Coast about 10 years ago from Los Angeles, as you said. And uh, I've been just having a blast, you know, checking out up and down the coast. There's so much history, so many great things to see. And D.C. was such a thrill to go to for the first time about four years ago with my son. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're all good. Um, had a bit of a hiccup, but now you're right as rain and, and back to it, right? Yeah, back to work. <laughs> Very cool. We love that. We love that. All right, so you ready to uh, dig into some questions and uh, sure, sure. give up the funk today? Yep, definitely. Want to keep the funk alive. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. So, Jerry, let's start way back with your roots in music. You know, tell us about your, your upbringing and how music became central in your life and how you got exposure to not only the keyboards, but also trumpet playing and your other, uh, you know, studio and stage talents. I guess like a lot of uh, kids of my generation, uh, there was a piano in the house. Uh, my mother used to play piano by ear. She was not um, formally taught. And uh, my aunt had, a, had an upright piano. So my mother decided uh, I should take piano lessons, whether I wanted to or not. But anyway, <laughs> I was about four and a half. So I did take piano lessons for about about four years until I just got tired of watching all my friends go out and play football and baseball and all the rest. And so I stopped, but probably maybe about the time that I was uh, uh, 11 or so, uh, I would hear songs on the radio that I got curious about. And I would go to the piano and try to pluck out the melody and, and different things. So there was, there was a, uh, a musical ear there, and my mother used to tell me that when I was a, a toddler, because uh, we had 78s back then, you know, those big records that look like albums that, that are very brittle. Like dinner plates, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I would go pick out the records I liked and put them on the record player and play them. Uh, I can only assume I'd do that because I'd recognize the color of the label, because I would, certainly couldn't read back then. Um, but there was there was a music affinity, and when I got to junior high school, uh, fortunately they had a music program at the school I went to. It was Herman Ritter in the Bronx, and uh, so I, I decided to tr try the trumpet. Now, like we had discussed earlier before we went on the air, I wanted to play guitar because my uncle played guitar, so I, I liked the guitar. Uh, but they didn't offer guitar, so I had to pick an instrument. So I'm looking at all the instruments. I said, saxophone, too many keys, flute, too many keys, clarinet, too many keys. Mm -hmm. ah, trumpet's only got three valves, you know, because I didn't want to do the trombone because that kind of, you know, had no stop. She just slide, you know. So I picked the trumpet. Boy, was that a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but I did turn out to be a pretty good trumpet player. Uh, I put my neighbors through a lot when I first had to learn that thing, because obviously when you, you know, if you, you're playing a trumpet, they didn't have have those uh, silent mute systems that Yamaha puts out now. You could hear me for blocks. So, you know, uh, that first year was was torturous. They, they didn't put us out of the building, but uh, I used to get some stairs when I used <laughs> to walk by with my trumpet. And then uh, I went to uh, 
Originally, I wanted to, to go into Bronx High School of Science. In New York, they had specialized high schools. They still do, but back then they had five specialized high schools. It was uh, Bronx um, High School of Science, uh, Music and Art, Performing Arts, which was the fame school from the TV series of the 70s, and then um, uh, Brooklyn Tech for people who wanted to do uh, uh, engineering and types of things. So originally I wanted to go to Bronx High School of Science, and I did test for it. But before that, I kind of discovered that I really liked music. And I had a really hip uh, trumpet pe uh, teacher who was one of my uh, teachers in junior high school, played uh, trombone, Jack Terod was his name. And so I went and I auditioned for music and art, and I got in there. And it, it, was, it was an interesting experience because at that time, music and art was in Harlem. It was up by City College, and it was up on this hill. It looked like a castle, you know. And uh, a lot of different people um, went to that school from all different kind of cultures, very diverse uh, culturally. But um, it was a sister school to performing arts. Performing arts basically did with dance, uh, theater, uh, and art, uh, uh, painting, things like that. Music and art dealt more with, uh, it, it did the art, but it, it had the musical side of it. So uh, a lot of classical uh, uh, influences. But by that time, I had also developed some strong uh, uh, leanings towards jazz. Um, my favorite band has always been the Count Basie band. And uh, I like Duke for his musicality, the tonal things that he did. So, because um, I've always liked the, the, uh, the composing side of things. Um, and, and when you study the piano, it's always been said the piano is like the orchestra because it's got the complete range of all the instruments. So the uh, studying studying orchestration and, and 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 how to how to compose a range and things like that would give you uh, you could use the tones and the colors and I always I always uh, liked that. Um, however, my favorite trumpet player was Dizzy Gillespie, and if you'll notice, this says Diz and Bird, so. <laughs> uh, so I like Dizzy, and because I liked his personality as well as his, his playing, so he was my favorite trumpet player, and then from there I expanded into other trumpet players that, that, that I like, Miles, uh, Clifford Brown, I love Clifford Brown, and then Freddie Hubbard and different people. But anyway, so, so uh, that gave me that background, and, and like I said, I was pretty good uh, in music, uh, some of the people that I went to, that went to music and art at the time that I was there, um, was uh, Hugh Masekela's daughter, Hugh and uh, and Mary Makiba. They had a daughter, Angie uh, Makiba, uh, and uh, Josh White's daughter, Judy White. She was there. So there were a lot of um, people who had solid backgrounds, and there are people who've come out of that school that um, have gone on to great success in the in the arts. Um, but once I got out of there, I then went to uh, Manhattan School of Music for a semester and was offered a partial scholarship at a small college, music college, but it was called New York College of Music. It was on the east side of Upper Manhattan. And that was an interesting uh, uh, experience. Um, I got to meet uh, 
uh, Kenny Dorm, who I met earlier in my career on, uh, on a New York City subway car. I was going to a rehearsal or something, and he was, he was riding a car, and I saw him, and he had a trumpet, and I, we just started talking. So it was interesting when, when uh, he wound up coming to the school. Harold Mayburn was another one that, that went there. And um, I forget there was a saxophonist that went there, too. So there were some established uh, jazz musicians who were, who were going there to, to, to uh, get more uh, training on the formal side of, of the music. So one of the things you learn is that musicians always want to keep learning and exploring. And if you, if you stop exploring or trying to learn, you, you really get stagnant. And you'll hear that consistently from musicians who are really into uh, what they do. But anyway, um, coming, out of, coming out of that period, uh, in New York, there used to be, this is before disco, so what used to happen was a lot of times people would give dances on the weekend, and bands would play at these different functions. Uh, so they were basically like your DJs, right? They'd play the live music, people would dance at these, these uh, dances or parties, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and there was a group uh, that was led by Ron Anderson. It was called Ron Anderson and the Versatiles. The drummer in that group was Bill Curtis at the time. And that's how I met Bill. And Bill told me um, around, I guess this was 68, early 69, that he had, he had the nucleus of Fatback, but they were just, he was doing local bands, so he was booking for dancers as well. But he hadn't started recording yet. And he had told me that he was going to start to do something and he wanted me to help him with it. So I said, sure, anytime you want to do it. So he had, he had actually released his uh, first album, which I think was People Music. And when he was getting ready for the second album, that's when I came in and started working with him. And uh, I worked with him all the way up until I formally stopped uh, performing live. But... Uh, at that same time, I also met in New York. They used to have what they used to call these uh, these jazz festivals uh, that were sponsored by the the New York the the uh, American Federation of Musicians, the local 802 in New York. Uh, Jazzmobile is what they called. I think uh, Billy Taylor started that way back uh, in in the early 60s. And what they would do is they they'd have this big truck. It was like a stage. And they'd perform in different neighborhoods, and people would come to hear them. And mostly it was it was mostly jazz. Um, but in doing that, I'd meet different musicians, would expand my field of of contacts. That was a way of networking. So I met Jimmy Castor's bass player at the time, who was uh, Roland Martinez, and he introduced. So it happened to be that that uh, Ron was Ron Anderson. We were playing a dance at the Audubon Ballroom, and Jimmy was playing a dance at the Audubon Ballroom in a different room. So uh, in talking with Roland, Roland introduced me to, to Jimmy. And so that's how I got my introduction to Jimmy. And, and, and shortly thereafter, Jimmy asked me if I wanted to you know, join the group. And that was before it actually became uh, the Jimmy Castor Bunch. There were some personal changes. Other people came in. And uh, the Jimmy Castor Bunch uh, then basically formed roughly about 1970, 71. And uh, that's when we came out with uh, the record It's Just Begun, which they used in the movie Flashdance. Uh, that came much later. But 
uh, that's when that song was recorded and, and troglodyte, which you mentioned, which kind of took Jimmy into that novelty bag. We weren't really a novelty uh, group, but because that record was uh, the gold record, you always try to repeat the success that you have. So we kind of got stuck in that in that vein. But we had a lot of fun with that. Well, let's, well, let's uh, uh, let me let jump me in here. That's a lot of history. So, Jerry, um, I actually have here, according to what I have, that uh, Let's Do It Again was the first yeah. fatback. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And then People, people Music people uh, actually, actually helped them with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <clears throat> so when that Jimmy Castor single hit like it did, um, why do you think it was such a sensation? And, you know, how did that affect you and, and that group? Well, uh, that's that's kind of an interesting story because because Jimmy used to like to watch movies late at night, and he happened to be watching this movie. It was called Troglodyte, and it was Joan Crawford was in the movie. Imagine Joan Crawford in a movie about cavemen. But anyway, <laughs> so he came to us. We were working at Small's Paradise in Harlem, and he said, "When I saw this movie, I got this idea for the song." He said, "Give me some kind of jungle music or something, you know." So we came up with 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 the rhythm because it's just a one groove continually through the record there are no changes or anything else in it so we did that and he would start rapping and the people at, at smalls would start cracking up you know they thought it was a funny record so um when we were recording that first uh, album uh at, at rca uh this uh jimmy's manager at the time danny with us said Put that record on there. Put it on the album. Let's put it on there. We, we all said, eh, we don't want to. No, that's that's a novelty record. No, go ahead. So we put it on there, and boom, you know, it wound up being a big hit. Well, what was it like when you first heard it on the radio and you saw what it was becoming? It was kind of amazing, you know. Um, if you've seen the movie, uh, the Five Heartbeats. Yeah. Okay. Robert Townsend. Right. When you, uh, which I think is a great movie, I love that movie. But if you remember the scene when he hears the record on the radio, it's exactly the same type of thing. You know, you say, "Oh wow, they're playing my record," you know. <laughs> so, so you get excited about it. You don't think you're you're getting stuck in that, you know, because because on that that first album, I mean, we did all kinds of, of of different musical styles on that record, but yeah, but you know. Just that's what people had the affinity for, and that's what he kind of got got labeled with, you know. Yeah, yeah, to me, I think it's kind of um, if you don't know going in and you put on that record, the whole album, it's kind of surprising because the others, a lot of the other stuff is so much more complex and so deep musically. Um, you know, great keyboards, guitar work, all the all of it, and you know, actually, I, I think maybe a lot of people don't realize what a talent Jimmy Castor was. So could you speak yeah. about his musicality a little bit? Oh yeah, he he actually went to music and art too. Um, the funny thing about Jimmy, Jimmy would never tell you his age. <laughs> so he used to tell me, I, he said, you know, I went to music and art, and I said, when did you go? Because <laughs> you know, I didn't remember seeing it. Because they'd have pictures of students, you know, from previous class. And so it never lined up with what he would tell you was his age, you know. But <laughs> anyway. Uh, but Jimmy, the, the thing I liked about Jimmy, because Jimmy could 
knew that I liked to do uh, arranging and, and orchestrations and things like that. And he always gave me the freedom to kind of expand uh, the things that we were doing. So he would be very open. Um, matter of fact, it's just begun came out of a song that I had I had done. It was completely different. It had the basic uh, motif of of it's just begun. Dun, 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 and he he and, and his partner John Pruitt were actually at my house, my mother's house, and they would listen to it and they say, Well, let's change this and let's change that and let's do this and this. And that's how it's just begun came apart uh, came about. Um he also let me do uh the prologue and epilogue creation, which was kind of different for a you know, so-called R and B group, you know. But I liked the Beatles. I loved uh, Chicago, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. So you hear some of those types of influence. My Brightest Day is kind of like a tribute to, to uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears in Chicago, the types of things that they were doing with the horns and, 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 and changing tempos and, and all that kind of stuff. So it, it wasn't just standard type of album, you know, so, which kind of made it kind of difficult, especially back in those days, for how do we market these people, you know? Um, I loved it musically, but but it did make it a little difficult. So uh, I think when Troglodyte hit, uh, it made it easier for them to say, okay, let's go in this direction. So explain to me, Jerry, the, the differences in, in working with a Jimmy Castor in the studio and creating with that band and what it was like with Bill and creating in the Fatback band. Polar opposites. <laughs> we would... Uh, uh, for the most part, the, most of the musicians in the bunch at that time were trained musicians. Not to say the guys in Jimmy's, I mean, in Bill's group weren't, but we, in Jimmy's group, we would rehearse. Uh, I'd write out charts a lot of times. And so when we went into the studio, everything was already basically pre-planned. That didn't mean that you couldn't come up with an idea that might change something. But that's basically how we went in. So it was more structured, you know. I would have sometimes uh, strings on the sessions, you know. Obviously, you're not going to improvise with that because it take too long to write up the charts, you know, while you're in the studio and that, that clock is running. Uh, so all of that, most of that stuff was was pre-planned. Bill, when you went to the studio, you didn't know what the heck you were going to do. So it's basically okay. Let's play a groove, you know. What you got, Flip? Uh, what you got, Johnny? You know, it was that type of thing. So it was much freer in terms of creativity, uh, but it, but you didn't know where you were going. But that that freedom allowed you to 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 listen more, you know, and and then pick up on what somebody was doing. You could say, hey, well, why don't we try this? Or let's try this. But the sessions would be, <laughs> you know, super long sometimes. And the other thing that Bill liked is he always liked. Uh, uh, having that party atmosphere. So we'd have people in the studio who just saying, okay, just party. And so you'd hear on, on uh, those early albums, background noise, people partying. That was, that was live. That was live. Some of it drove me. It was live, yeah. Were you recording in uh, the same studios or different studios? No, we had different studios. Um, uh, the early cast albums were done uh, at RCA Studios, um, 
while we were the RCA, when we went to uh, um, Atlantic, then we would kind of venture out. We would um, we did a, a several of those at Media Sound in New York, um, and uh, that was partially because I think uh, Bill the Fatback was starting to use that as well. So we already had a relationship there, and we knew the engineers, uh, Tony Bonjelvi, who was uh, a legend in recording from the work he had done at Motown, had opened up the studio. Uh, Media Sound, which was actually an old church that they converted into a into a, a recording studio, and a, a lot of your top engineers came out of that place: Bob Clear Mountain, um, Michael Barbieri, uh, uh, Godfrey Diamond. Uh, so they all were assistants, basically, when when we were there, except for Tony, you know, and we were using Tony. And, and one of the funny stories was because. Because Bill didn't always know the technical jargon, so he'd kind of say, "Well, I want this. You'll give me this, this." And Tony would just look at him and say, "And then he say, Jerry, what does he want?" And I said, "This is what he wants." And if I was on the road with Jimmy and Bill had booked the studio, you know, Tony would say, "Jerry, you got to come back." <laughs> Interpreter, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, was uh, did Bill have any formal training, or was he pretty much self-taught? No, he had he had some formal training um, in percussion and stuff, and then and then when he was in, when he was in the army, he also played in uh, the army band while he was in the service in the uh, earlier fifties. And then uh, you know he, um, I know he worked with uh, Bill Doggett and a couple of other people. You know when he got out. So when you first connected with each band, Jerry, <clears throat> you know. Uh, Jimmy had already had an album out. Uh, Fatback already had an album out. You know, what did you think of what they have been doing? And what did you think you could bring to that? And what were maybe they looking for you to bring to it? Well, the funny thing was Jimmy's first hit, quote unquote, and it was, before, like I said, it wasn't the bunch then, it was just Jimmy Gaston, uh, was hey, hey Leroy, which was kind of a novelty record. You know, it was a Calypso, but it was it was still a novel. Please, you know, hey, Leroy, what? Your mother, she's calling you. You know, you know and it goes into that. Uh, so I guess there was some there was some uh, uh, seeds to what was to come later there. Uh, but but basically, I mean, we were very, we were basically a cover band. A lot of the stuff we did, we used to cover. You know, the music of of the time that we enjoyed. Um, as it became the bunch, the original stuff started coming together. And, and uh, I think that gave Jimmy a, a vehicle with the musicians he had to be able to, to concentrate a little bit more on the writing that he wanted to do. Um, in terms of Bill, um, Bill had these sounds and ideas in his head, but he, like I said, he didn't write anything down. He'd just go into the studio and I'd say, he might hum a phrase to you or say, play something and then go from there. He was more like like George George Clinton in that you know because Bernie Bernie Worrell and I were good friends, um, so we used to talk a lot about you know the the different situations because I had a lot of respect for Bernie. I thought he was the, one of the great keyboard players. You know, uh, mm -hmm. sorry to you know hear about his his passing recently, but but uh, but Bernie was cool and 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 it did influence us. Um, I like the girls was more going P funk than James Brown. 
you know, that's that was the groove because you'll hear a lot of the synth work kind of imitate some of the stuff that Bernie was doing with the move, you know, because like I said, he, he influenced a lot of what what I did um, with them, with Fatback. Um, but so uh, getting back to, to Bill, when I joined the group, he didn't bring me in. He brought me in basically to help him with the recording stuff because I was still working with 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 uh, Jimmy, so it was only the recording stuff that I would come in there, and but I think he had ideas of wanting to expand things, so he would let me add little things because because I I used to bring them stuff they wouldn't have never thought about doing on their own. Um, the the structure how they created wasn't into that, but but. Uh, the guys were musical, you know, so it interests them. And then they, it was challenging. They wanted to do it, you know. Uh, the arrangement I did on uh, uh, December 63, Oh What a Night, uh, was very complex because all of that had to be taught because none of it was written out. And there a lot of different changes in that particular arrangement. So we had to go by section by section, and and you know they kept up with it and and did it. So it was uh, I enjoyed it because it gave me a chance to to broaden the things that I was doing. I could do things with them that that we weren't doing on Jimmy's side, and vice versa. And that that was from uh, the um, Night Fever nineteen seventy six album. Oh, right. what a night! Yeah. So let's so viewers know. Um, what what made you decide to cover that particular song? It just interests me, you know. It was I, I liked the tune. I said, hmm, I mean, that that might be an interesting tune for us to do, you know, uh, something totally different. I don't think anybody would have expected, you know, Fatback to do that that particular tune, you know. So, and they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to ask you, <clears throat> you know. Did Jimmy or Bill care that you were, you know, in the other's camp? And, you know, was there ever any conflicts or, or issues with that? I mean, how did you keep everybody happy? Uh, I've always been diplomatic. <laughs> um, well, because, because uh, the producing, the arranging that I was doing, uh, didn't encroach on either area because even though Jimmy, some of the stuff we did was funky, uh, more of our stuff would be, I would consider maybe pop R&B on, on, on Jimmy's side. Um, uh, so there wasn't, there wasn't any, there only became an issue once that, uh, that, uh, I'll briefly talk about that. Uh, there was a, when I wrote um, Spanish Hustle. I originally wrote it for Jimmy, and there was a situation that happened within the group that that strained our relationship. And so when I had taught it to to the to the band, and, and matter of fact, we were working out at Disneyland, uh, and on one of their stages and they had the submerged stage and then it brings you up. Uh, so what we would do, what the guys would do is we would jam on Spanish hustle 
as it was bringing the stage up and then stopped, right? But it seemed like a, a natural tune because Jimmy played timbales and all the Latin and stuff. Well, like I said, our relationship got a little strange. So he, when I mentioned to him, you know, about the song, he said, oh, I can give that to Lenny Adams. Because Lenny Adams had Black Ivory at the time. I'm trying to say, Lenny Adams. I said, okay, not mind. Don't worry about it. And uh, I taught it to Fatback. And, and uh, I knew uh, um, Vince Aletti at, uh, I think he was at Record World and, and Tom Moulton. You know, and I, we got dubs to them, and they said, wow, you know, and they got it to the, to the clubs and, and kind of broke it, you know. So so while that record was going up the charts, you know, I used to get some looks sometimes, <laughs> you know. I bet because it's not only that you changed it, but also it was a kind of a hit, so. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't changed that much. Um, and I, I think the other part of it to say, uh, uh, it would have been an instrumental record for Jimmy because obviously the synthesizer was playing playing the lead uh which for Fatback wasn't a problem because Fatback really wasn't a singing group until much later I mean people sang but they weren't singer singers you know what I'm saying uh we didn't really have that till we had Michael Walker who came later group vocals yeah yeah uh so there wouldn't have been much for Jimmy to do except play timbales because you couldn't have played that you could have played it on saxophone but it wasn't really written that way you know what i'm saying so i'll say maybe that's why he thought of, of, of giving it to to somebody else but i wasn't interested in doing that so i said if, if we're not going to do it then I'll, I'll give it to, to fatback and we can do that so obviously fences were mended because you continued working in that arrangement for years after that oh yeah oh yeah yeah that was a little hiccup <laughs> <laughs> for the uh diplomatic jerry thomas <laughs> well it got it got um towards the latter part of the 70s um jimmy wasn't really getting hits anymore so when i had to do uh studio work with with uh with fatback um, that started to get strained, and that really caused more of the break because, you know, my income was coming more from that side than it was coming from Jimmy's side. So that, that accelerated me leaving the group, you know. Uh, I so mean, just for economic sense, you know. What year did you part from Jimmy Castor? 79. 79, yeah. So uh, Fatback Band, the name, um, I've heard that it's related to either the New Orleans, uh, you know, fat back, but but did it also have double meanings, you know, for you know, <laughs> ladies' hindquarters and money and all that stuff? What what's behind the name? Bill always told me that there was a beat in in um, out of the New Orleans area that that emphasized the bass drum and the snare, um, uh, but the bass drum really prominent, and that's what he called the fat back beat. It was. Uh, there's a funny story about when uh, we had uh, our gold record uh, on Hotbox, and the record company was going to do a party, and they told us they were going to have fat back, fat back, at, as part of the the food items. We said no, don't go there. <laughs> you know, that's not what fat back means. So don't go there. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I would think there was a lot of that probably uh, that people weren't familiar with, yeah. you know, the origin. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think I didn't mention when we were talking about, but that troglodyte, I mean, that whole thing, I think, was a big influence on some of the stuff that Cool and the Gang would do. Do you agree with that? Like, you know, yeah, um, buggy, sparing the buggy, that kind of stuff. Right, um, and and we used to do a lot of gigs together. I, I mean, I knew the guys. Uh, uh, sometimes we'd hang out afterwards. They for, they were from Jersey. We from you know the Bronx and Queens and Brooklyn. Uh, so we knew each other. So I'm, we were listening to what each other were you know were doing. Um, uh, there were a lot of bands coming out of New York at that time. Mandrill, uh, Brass Construction, you know. So we were all listening to each other. So yeah, I can imagine. I don't know if they would say that that didn't influence them, but I think it did. I think it did. You know. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, it worked. Those were big hits for them too. So. Oh yeah, no question. <clears throat> so, what was it like? You know, did you get out and do any uh, live performances with Fatback? Did you do live performances with Jimmy Castor, whether you oh, know, yeah. in a venue or uh, TV appearances? Yeah, um, well, when, like I said, with Jimmy, um, when I joined the group, uh, he was a he was a touring uh, touring band. Uh, a lot of that we did was uh, what would used to be called the chitlin' circuit. I mean, we went all up and down the East Coast, out to the West Coast, um, Canada. Went up to Canada a lot to Toronto, uh, and would play. There was a club up there called Le Cadour. That we used to play on a regular basis. Um, Smalls Paradise, the Apollo, um, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. You know, uh, we would do some concerts. Uh, they had a, a after in I think it was the the last album we did with uh, RCA. Um, they had they had this big uh, concert in in Atlanta uh, as a tribute to Martin Luther King. Uh, and we we were there at uh, for that. Um, so yeah, we we did a lot of traveling. I went to uh, uh, Saudi Arabia with Jimmy. We went to uh, England. Um, there was a, a tour that Atlantic put together in '75 uh, with uh, the Spinners, Sister Sledge, Benny King, and us. Uh, that's how I met Benny. Um, you know, we were lifelong friends after that. Matter of fact, he even uh, he did a guest appearance on on the last album we did uh, with Fatback at Cotillion back in '83. Um, but it, it was uh, it was it was funny because uh, when we went over to England, the first city we played was Liverpool, home of the the Beatles, right? So after we did the show, we went out and hung out at the discotheque, right? And what are they playing but some flatback? Yeah. You know, so when I told you know, I told some people, I said, oh, yeah, I did some work with them. They were coming over to me <laughs> more behind the flatback than the fact that I was over there with Jimmy. What, what year was that? That was in 75. So uh, Bill hadn't been over there. 
Um, so when I got back, I told her, I said, you got to get in touch with the promoter and get over to England because you guys are hot up there, you know, um, especially the Northern Soul. If you're familiar with, with uh, any of the stuff over in Europe, they, uh, in England especially, they played a lot of soul music because the BBC didn't play any of that stuff at that time. That later changed uh, because a lot of the uh, offshore pirate radio stations and, and, uh, and what was coming out of the North because that they would play all the stuff that the BBC wouldn't play. That, uh, the, that was really the funky music, you know, the funk music and R&B. So uh, that's when he started going over there and they found out they were very popular and did very well over there, you know. And when uh, I went over a number of times once I switched over, but uh, all through the 70s, I only appeared with Jimmy and I would work in the studios with Fatback. So, Jerry, what was the uh, uh, stage presentation like for each act during the 70s? You know, how did they differ there? Well, after um, once Jimmy got into the into more than the novelty bag, um, there would be a lot of presentations. So, like when we had Dracula, King Kong, and all those those novelty records, we actually had either stage people or uh, one of the roadies would get up in a Kong suit to come out like King Kong and, and uh, the bass player would dress up like Dracula. So that became a big part of the stick of the, of the show. Uh, but other than that, I mean, it was basically Jimmy as the front man and we're the band, you know, whereas uh, Fatback, it was just kind of uh, straight across. Um, uh, it was like a lot of the bands back in those days, um, Cool and the Gang and a lot of those groups, you didn't really have uh, the front man. Um, I forget the, the the lead that that was with uh, Cool. Um, that when they had Celebration and, and uh, JT Taylor, right? Um, that became more of the standard. You know, you got the front man and then you got the guys behind it. But but uh, so we were we were all just we were bands, BT Express, all of those groups at that time. You know. Uh, so it was almost like just uh, an evolution of what used to be the dance bands back in the day, you know, when, when we used to do parties and dances, you know, you were just playing music um, uh, for the for dances. So that was, like I said before, that was the precursor to, to, to disco, you know, we didn't know that we were going to create a situation that would that would lead to our own demise in terms of places to work. But anyway, <laughs> you know, then you had to find big venues. You have to get records that were big enough because no club wanted to hire you at the cost that you, that might cost them to bring in eight, nine people when you could pay one DJ to come in and play some records, you know? So, mm -hmm. so that kind of changed, changed the business from that standpoint. But, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things, because we knew we didn't have, uh, uh, and this is a fatback, that we didn't have a, uh, a real front man because Johnny, Johnny, Johnny Flippin played bass, so he couldn't stop playing bass and just sing. He had to sing and play bass. So, so that kind of limited it to, to some degree. Um, uh, so uh, we, we, got, uh, we got dancers. Uh, that we wound up calling Wild Sugar, uh, that were that would perform with the group to give you some more showmanship on the stage. You know, you're not just looking at guys playing. You know, you actually had some some uh, performers. So 
some attractive young ladies that you could look at, <laughs> you know, dancing. So that added element, you know. Yeah, a lot of the bands back then would do that. Either get some eye candy up there or get some dancers up there. And they would do they would do some of the background singing too, you know. But they 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 were hired originally because because actually Robin Dunn, who was who was uh, with the group back at that time, has done a lot of work with a lot of hip hop acts and stuff in terms of choreography and stuff that she's done later. So she's she's very popular up in New York. Um, Post post fatback, but um, they were hired basically for the dancing and the singing later, you know. And then we kind of had to kind of try to. It was way before auto tune and all the rest of that stuff. Right, right. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Though Deborah Cooper uh, was with us in those early days, and then she later went and became a part of Change. So she's she's had a good career. So, Jerry. You know, how did you manage to be so prolific? I mean, you, you know, some of those years were three records coming out between the two bands. It must have been you're working all the time or just uh, fast or what? Uh, a little bit of everything. Um, uh, like I said, uh, with Jimmy, we would we didn't quite put out records at the same speed as, as, uh, as Fatback. Uh, and because they were... Uh, in other words, I would present songs that I thought he might be interested to him um, for uh, approval. Uh, it was more structured, more organized, you know. And then he would decide, okay, we're going to use this, 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 and this for the album. Uh, whereas with Fatback, um, it was more open. Like I said, a lot of some of the time sessions, we'd be in the studio all day and all night. You know, we didn't know what time of day or night it was, you know, and uh, which was very costly, but it led to some very interesting um, sessions and, and, and situations because it, it really gave us a chance to spend more time to experiment and get what we were looking for. Uh, Jimmy liked to work faster. Sometimes I think he, he liked to work a little too fast. You know, he, he, didn't, he wasn't into doing 10 or 20 shakes, you know. Uh, he'd do a couple of takes and that was it. Um, so it, it, I think it, it, for him, um, sometimes we let things go that we shouldn't have, you know what I'm saying? Uh, where, uh, and this is, this is before digital and all the rest of that stuff. So, you know, if, if you wanted to, the splice things you had you had to splice them. There was no digital slicing where you could just insert, you know, this wasn't the, the four auto tunes a lot. Some of that stuff. Razor blades. Co correct. And we've had some ex ex experiences with that, you know, when uh, messed up because when you're cutting uh, when you're cutting twenty four track, you make a mistake. It's over. You know, you can't recoup, especially when you get into those thin slices. You know, where you're trying to. to they just shave a beat or something, you know. So uh, most of the times we try to do that to the to the two track and then do it. But occasionally we had a couple of situations with the bigger ones, which which led to some interesting uh, effects. Um, uh, there's a record we had out called "The Girl Is Fine." Uh, I think that was on the um, "Is This the Future" album, uh, which was the last record we did with Spring. And if you notice it, 
it's it's got a very weird very beginning it's almost like you hear the drums lurch into it well that's because we started recording before the before the engineer actually pushed the button so while he pushed the button it actually caught you know so you're hearing it speed up to, to speed we just start record then start playing you know anyway but but we like the, the fact that it did that you know uh one of the things that that uh when you're creating uh, you learn what they say you have to have a hook. The hook could be something melodic, could be a lyric, could be a sound, but something that you would remember, you know. Those were the things that you always tried to look for when you were creating things, so. So looking uh, back at some of the uh, earlier Fatback albums, um, you had a, a female singer that came, became prominent uh, around uh 74 period it looks like um you know how did that happen and you know did you have a preference if there was you know a prominent lead vocalist versus a group vocal and where'd you sit on that oh no um whoever could do whoever could do the song you know uh justice basically is what we would look for um some of the songs, um, especially the ones that I uh, wrote, um, I would have a particular, because by that time I knew the sound, I knew Johnny King's sound, I knew Flip's sound. Um, so I would already have in mind who I'd ask, you know, can you sing this song? You know, can you sing this part or whatever? Um, and a lot of the songs would have group vocal and then lead, you know, sections. Um, so it, it didn't matter, you know, whoever could do the song, you know, uh, we would, uh, we would, uh, we would, uh, allow to do that. And a lot of, a lot of guest appearances with different people. Um, matter of fact, on, uh, the Night Fever album, um, on the song Night Fever, you hear a female vocal on the bridge that's just saying Night Fever. That was Phyllis Hyman. Huh? Yeah, um, that was an uncredited uh, uh, spot we did. But uh, when Phyllis first came to New York, she used to uh, perform a lot at a club called McKell's up in Upper West, Upper Manhattan on the on the West Side. And uh, we got to be really good friends. So I would come down to Washington when she was playing in Washington and just hang out with her and her husband, Larry, at the time. And because, because I mean, I just thought she was fantastic. She got, she had a fantastic voice. So uh, we lost, uh, we didn't communicate as much after she was in uh, the hit play, and then later on, and uh, obviously she uh, tragically died. But, but uh, she was, she was a great talent. So uh, I asked her would she come in and, and do that for me, and she, she said, yeah, she had no problem. So. But we had a lot of things. We used uh, um, uh, a lot of people, uh, guests appeared on some of our records. Uh, David Sanborn was on several of the things we did. Uh, uh, who else? Um, uh, one of the person that I went to school with, keyboard, uh, pianist, jazz pianist, Najee Allen Gums, uh, has done several uh, guest appearances on some of the albums that we've done. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned about the uh, sort of influence and, you know, sharing and, you know, being colleagues and friends with some of the other bands like Cool in the Game back then. You know, and going back and listening to the early records, you know, I hear so many influences and, you know, hopefully 
you agree, but I mean, I hear, you know, Temptations and Dispute of Truth and Funkadelics and Beat the Express. Of course, James Brown uh, was big, even some Sly Stone, you know. How are all those things influencing and inspiring the band? And how did you try to, uh, you know, take it, that in without just, you know, mimicking or copying it? Well, I mean, um, obviously, when you're, when you're listening to music, you're, uh, and depending on how broad your, your musical interests and tastes are, you're, you absorb a lot of that stuff. So you tend to build on what's come before you. So, you, you know, you hear things that you like. One of the things um, that I tried to do uh, was not, uh, I mean, I might copy the flavor. Like I said, I Like Girls was influenced by P-Funk, Funkadelic. Um, but you didn't want to totally uh, abrogate their their sound, their style, you know, where you're just copying them. You, influencing is one thing, but actually taking it, you know, uh, was another, which sampling got into that, that, that area. Um, I, I think that's always been the case, you know, um, with the history of music. You know, everybody listens to who's come before them and then take little things that you hear and then twist it and change it and look at it from a different point of view and and uh, give it your own personality and style. Um, we didn't, um, maybe the closest that I came to, to copying a style, like I mentioned earlier, was uh, My Brightest Day on the first album that was under the Jimmy Castor Bunch name, which was a tribute more or less to, to uh, um, Blood, Sweat and Tears and, and Chicago. It wasn't us trying to be them, you know, it was just saying, oh, we admire these, this group, you know, so this is, this is, a, this is like what they would, they might do, you know, obviously we didn't have the brass section of either group, you know, so it wasn't going to be that big, but, but it would, if you listen to it, you say, oh yeah, okay, I can hear the influence, you know, it was that type of thing. So, and I think, uh, you hear that in a lot of groups, you know, a lot of uh, groups, you know, you hear in some of the stuff Prince did, he's, he's, he's acknowledging the people that came before him, you know, and the sounds that came before him and, and people after him acknowledge that, oh yeah, we're influenced by, by Prince. Uh, Sly and the Family Stone, we used to play a lot of their songs with Jimmy, you know, so that naturally that becomes an influence, you know. Uh, we weren't trying to be Sly and the Family Stones, but you might get a Sly and the Stone type of a groove or flavor, you know. But we didn't have Larry Graham. We didn't have, you know, Rose. We didn't have. So everybody's going to do their own interpretation of. of well, I think I think there can be a, a thin line between, um, you know, sort of mimicking or replicating and assimilating it and creating cool. something new with it. Yeah. You know, and, and a lot of times when you're trying to. Uh, I'll give you an example. You have the uh, what they call the cover bands, right? Where they actually try to sound like the record, note for note, vocal inflections, everything. You know, that's a whole different thing. You know, that's that's not being creative. That's just imitating. You know, and um, that's not to say the people that do that don't have creativity, but their creativity, at least as demonstrated in those situations, is based on something that came before them. They didn't do that. They're just imitating it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, so. 
So, Jerry, this song, <clears throat> Dear the Bus Stop, was a hit in 75. That was a, a dance of some kind, right? What was yeah. what was going on behind that? And was it sort of a, a craze in the East Coast? Uh, Lead the Bus Stop uh, was a dance that started out of Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. And uh, uh, Bill was familiar with it. Um, Robin was familiar with it. So he wanted to to do something that would it was what it was a line dance, you know, and there have been many different variations of line dances, you know. Um, so that was what he was trying to capitalize on. Let's do our version of, of a song that people can do the bus stop to, you know, and then teach them how to do do the bus stop at the same time in the song. So that's where that came from. That was that was his whole focus when we did that. And that same record had the Spanish uh, hustle on it. How, how did you come by sort of some of that uh, Spanish or Latin influence in what you did? Was it just part of being being in, in the New York area? Totally. Um, I grew up in the South Bronx. There's a <clears throat> Hispanic area uh, yeah, at that time and continues to be. Uh, uh, there were some clubs over on Southern Boulevard uh, where they used to have uh, Willie Colon, um, uh, uh, can't think of names now, but a lot of the, the major talents of, of the area uh, would perform there. Um, I always liked uh, Latin music, uh, Latin music, Afro-Cuban, all of that is, is related. I like the rhythms. Um, one of the instruments that I played um, when I was going to school was, uh, 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 was a, uh, a it's like the French I think it was a melophonium. But anyway, uh, but when you're playing that, a lot of the parts that were written for it was syncopated. So it helped develop that sense of being able to play off the rhythm, off rhythm, you know. So uh, I still like uh, uh, and listen to a lot of, of uh, Latin music, you know. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely uh, New York influenced uh, from, from the area that I grew up in, yeah.